Lafayette, we are here, the French history podcast for the American public by a Frenchman. Learn all about France's fascinating history, its great characters like Charlemagne, Joan of Arc, Louis XIV, or Napoleon, but also the great events that marked France, Europe, and sometimes the whole world. Lafayette, we are here, available wherever you get your podcast or on lafayettepodcast.com. À bientôt. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we introduced the island of Madagascar, and learned about its five unique climatic regions, as well as meeting a slice of the unique flora and fauna that call, or once called, the island home. In this episode, we'll launch into the History of Madagascar, Season 4, Episode 2, Settlers from All Directions. Determining a hard date, or even really a rough estimate, for the beginning of human habitation on Madagascar is a surprisingly difficult task. There is a great deal of conflicting and often dubious evidence that can lead multiple respected researchers to come to dramatically different conclusions about when the human story on Madagascar truly started. The very oldest of these estimates can reach as far back as 2000 BC. At the site Lakatonianja, in the northwest of Madagascar, archaeologists have uncovered the bones of elephant birds and giant lemurs, which show some evidence of early human interaction. There are cuts on the bones, which some archaeologists have claimed represent evidence that the bones were cut or skinned by human tools. Even better, these bones were accompanied by the discovery of a collection of stone tools, namely sharpened stones often identified as arrowheads or carving tools. On the other hand, there is pretty good reason to question this evidence. For starters, how did the archaeologists decide on that 2000 BC figure? Well, they used a reputable dating technique called optically stimulated luminescence dating, which, through a lot of complex chemistry, can determine with decently reliable precision when the last time the material was exposed to sunlight. This can give us a pretty good idea of the artifact's age. Except, well, they didn't actually date the artifacts themselves, and instead simply dated the soil layer in which the artifacts were discovered. This has caused some to question the validity of this dating for these stone artifacts. Additionally, the notion that the animal's bones show clear signs of cutting and skinning by human tools is, well, less than universally accepted. While the supposed identification of arrowheads is not as cut and dry as you might expect, Actually examining the artifacts, it's pretty clear why some archaeologists have questioned their identification as being sharpened by human hands, as they could very well simply be, well, sharp rocks. Now, there are later sites, with the oldest of these dating back to 300 BC, which do showcase much more convincing evidence of human activity. Again, it is animal bones that are the key factor here. But in this case, the evidence of human cutting and skinning is much more demonstrable. So, we can include with at least some certainty that by 300 BC, there were human beings on the island of Madagascar. But it's still a bit more complicated than that. You see, while we have evidence for human beings uh, being on Madagascar at the time, there is shockingly little to show that these people actually lived on Madagascar. Yes, there are remains of cut animal bones and a few tools, but there is shockingly little evidence for the existence of things like long-term or temporary shelters, fire pits, man-made clearings, or really anything else that shows that these people were actually living there. 
Additionally, the sheer rarity of these findings compared to other parts of the world has led to two dominant theories. A. These early artifacts were created by multiple, very small groups of nomadic hunter-gatherers who lived on the island. However, these groups then later went extinct for unknown reasons, which isn't that crazy given how tiny they were to begin with. The more common, and frankly more plausible, theory is that these artifacts do not represent an early permanent population, but were rather left by transient nomadic visitors who lived on the island short-term. According to this theory, the early artifacts on Madagascar were not left by the island's earliest permanent residents, but rather by people from elsewhere, likely mainland Africa, who arrived on the island, left behind these artifacts, and maybe stayed there for a while before returning home. Who these people were, and why they came to Madagascar, is a mystery. Though, given that most of the artifacts from the era are either tools related to hunting or skinned and cut animal bones, it seems most likely that they were there to hunt the local wildlife. Also, depending on the era, some of the tools found on the island clearly resemble contemporary tools from coastal East Africa. So, our best guess is that these earliest people to visit the island were likely East African hunter-gatherers who showed up on the island, hunted the exotic lemurs and elephant birds, and then migrated elsewhere and moved on. While these East African hunter-gatherers were likely the first people to visit a pristine, uninhabited Madagascar, they were also probably not the last. The Indian Ocean is the best ocean in the world when it comes to sailing. Compared to the tumultuous and often unpredictable winds of the Atlantic, the Indian Ocean provides consistent, predictable breezes in the form of monsoon winds. Even better, unlike the Pacific, oceanic current gyres in the Indian Ocean happen to align in a way that is very convenient for sailors. The northernmost and southernmost currents in the Indian Ocean each travel east to west, while a countercurrent in the middle splits between them. This might not sound important, until you realize that this means that any reasonably skilled navigator seeking to sail across the Indian Ocean could reliably chart a path in which they sail with the current both ways. So, in regards to both consistent winds and convenient currents, the Indian Ocean is the mariner's playground. It is no surprise, then, that for the bulk of human history, the Indian Ocean served as the nexus for the most connected and lucrative international trade system on Earth. Each region surrounding the ocean had its own unique goods and services to offer. It's impossible to get into the sheer dearth of products an interested merchant could acquire from ports on the Indian Ocean, so instead let's offer an abridged summary of some of the most interesting. In East Africa, merchants could buy incense, luxury timber, animal pelts, ivory, and pearls, among other goods. To merchants buying from the islands of modern Indonesia and Malaysia, spices were the main product of interest, including cloves, galangal, and, of course, nutmeg. Meanwhile, merchants in the Middle East could make their fortune peddling textiles, dates, silverware, and glass. The Indian subcontinent, on the other hand, offered dyes, pottery, ivory, cotton, precious stones, and much, much more. And, perhaps most profitably of all, any land on the fringes of this enormous trade network could make a fortune acting as middlemen, reselling goods from and finding markets of eager customers in places as far afield as Europe, China, and Central Africa. In addition to acting as a lucrative hub of commerce, Indian Ocean maritime trade also facilitated a robust exchange of culture, ideas, and people. As we saw in our season on Aksum, it was a merchant tapping into the Indian Ocean trade route who first introduced Christianity to the Ethiopian highlands. Maritime trade also facilitated the spread of Hinduism and Buddhism into Southeast Asia, 
as well as the spread of Islam from Arabia across East Africa and Southeast Asia. Similarly, the Sanskrit writing system of India influenced the literary traditions of Southeast Asia, while the use of Arabic abjad spread throughout East Africa. It is within the context of this cultural melting pot of Indian Ocean trade that Madagascar's history began. Though it is weird to think about, for much of Madagascar's history, the island was essentially an uninhabited block in the middle of a busy trade superhighway. And it's not like people didn't know about the island's existence either. In fact, in maybe the strangest sentence I've ever said on this show, okay, bear with me, but yes, there is some debatable evidence that a crew of Phoenician sailors on the orders of Egyptian pharaoh Necho II circumnavigated the entire African continent in the 600s BC. And this isn't like weird History Channel stuff either. This is an idea that is floated seriously in historical academic circles. Not kidding. Now, I obviously can't just bring that up and casually move on, but, well, we have to cover Madagascar. So if you want to learn more about the purported circumnavigation of Africa ordered by an Egyptian pharaoh, then you can listen to our latest premium episode, which focuses on that topic at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. And to those of you already supporting the show, thank you and enjoy the coming episode. It's going to be, uh, weird. Okay, that strangeness aside, the alleged Egyptian expedition isn't the only dubious evidence of possible outside knowledge of Madagascar's existence. Long-time listeners might remember a certain Roman travel guide called the Periplus of the Erythraean Sea. The book, which claims to chronicle all of the most important stops from a merchant in the Indian Ocean, might actually make reference to Madagascar. The Periplus mentions an island called Menutheus, which the writer describes as being the home of numerous rivers, exotic birds, tortoises, and even pacifistic crocodiles. According to the Periplus, nearby people often traveled to Menutheus, particularly with the intention of hunting the tortoises there using traps made from wicker baskets. Some scholars, like anthropologist Robert Blunch, have maintained that the description's mentions of rivers proves that Menutheus is in fact Madagascar. After all, Madagascar is the only island off the coast of East Africa which features any major rivers. He also points that the mention of tortoises makes sense, given the presence of Malagasy giant tortoises on the island at the time of the Periplus's writing. However, others have contended that Minutheus cannot be Madagascar, since the Periplus straightforwardly claims that Minutheus is only 300 stadia, or little over 30 miles, off the African coast, which, if Minutheus is Madagascar, would be a severe underestimate. Additionally, the Periplus states that the island featured no wild beasts except crocodiles, which was also not close to true about Madagascar. Rather, the most common alternative answer to the identity of Minutheus is Zanzibar, an island located not too far off the coast of modern Tanzania. Zanzibar also hosted an island of giant tortoises at the time, but while the lack of wild beasts isn't really accurate for Zanzibar either, and unlike Madagascar, the island lacks any major rivers, with only a few large streams flowing in the island's north. So whether you believe Minutheus is Madagascar, Zanzibar, or perhaps somewhere totally different, is basically a question of whether you put more credence in the island's distance from the shore, or the reported presence of large rivers on the island. Regardless of if Minutheus is Madagascar or not, it's clear from the aforementioned archaeological evidence of hunting on the island that though the island was likely uninhabited in late antiquity, that has still played a small role in the Indian Ocean trade network through the provision of exotic animal products. 
The sheer importance of the Indian Ocean in terms of maritime history is crucial to understanding Madagascar because of what happened next. Again, we are stuck working in rough estimates, as we can't say for certain when it actually happened, but sometime in the 6th to 7th century AD, the first people arrived in Madagascar who intended to stay. And, in a surprising twist, these people were not from the nearby coastline of East Africa, but rather originated from a much more distant homeland. These earliest permanent settlers on Madagascar were, in fact, Austronesian. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. In the earliest episode of this podcast, we spent some time talking about the major linguistic families of Africa, those being the Afroasiatic, Niger-Congo, Nilo-Saharan, and Khoisan. Austronesian, too, is one of these language families in Africa, though it's not one that people primarily associate with Africa. Rather, the bulk of Austronesian languages are spread throughout much of Asia and the Pacific, with some of the best-known members including Bahasa Indonesia, Malay, Hawaiian, Samoan, Maori, as well as the languages of the Philippines and the native peoples of Taiwan. Now, if you are paying attention to that list of languages, you might have noticed a correlation between Austronesian languages and, well, islands. And this is no coincidence. The earliest ancestors of the Austronesians, likely originating from the island of Taiwan, are the probable candidate for the first people to build ships in human history capable of prolonged oceanic travel, the outrigger canoe. An outrigger is a buoyant piece of material that is attached to one or both sides of a vessel, providing it with greater stability. Prior to the invention of the outrigger, the open ocean was far too tumultuous for unsupported canoes to navigate. But using this new piece of technology, Proto-Austronesians were able to sail outstandingly long distances, allowing them to discover and settle previously uninhabited islands. The earliest migrations started around 3000 BC. One group of Austronesians, the ancestor of the modern Polynesian peoples of the Pacific, became especially good at this. Remember how I mentioned that the Pacific is a tricky ocean to sail in due to its currents in the south flowing only in one direction? Well, the Polynesians were actually able to overcome this obstacle and settled numerous islands in the Pacific despite having to sail against the current the whole time. Regardless, while Polynesian history absolutely slaps, they were not the Austronesians who first settled Madagascar. Rather, the earliest migrants to Madagascar likely hailed from the island of Borneo. Among modern Malagasy, the oldest mitochondrial genetics align best with the people of Borneo, known as the Dayaks. However, the identification of the Dayaks as the earliest people to move to Madagascar only brings up more questions. For starters, why make this ridiculously long and treacherous journey? Well, sadly, we possess no written records contemporaneous with the voyages of the first Dayaks to Madagascar, and later Malagasy oral histories say surprisingly little about this monumentous moment for reasons we'll discuss in our next episode. So, sadly, we're left with speculation. One of the more common theories is that the Dayaks that would settle Madagascar did not actually come to the island of their own free will. 
According to Anne Kumar of Australian National University and Adam Adelar of the University of Melbourne, there's some good reason to believe that rather than sailing to the island themselves, the Dayaks were in fact brought to Madagascar as enslaved workers by another Austronesian people, the Javanese. Java, if you're not aware, is another island in the Indonesian archipelago, the one that kind of looks like a long, stretchy ribbon on a map. Kumar and Adelar note the relative lack of ocean-going maritime traditions among Dayak peoples compared to the dearth of ocean-going traditions in Java, as well as the presence of a high number of Javanese loanwords within the Malagasy language, and the fact that later Malagasy farming traditions are in some ways more like those in Java than Borneo. If we believe this theory, then the best guess for a motive for Austronesian colonization of Madagascar was an economic one. There is some pretty strong linguistic and genetic evidence that Madagascar was not the only African destination for Indonesian settlers. Linguistic and genetic studies point to some degree of Javanese presence not only in Madagascar, but throughout mainland Southeast Africa. Particularly, there is strong evidence of intermarriage between Javanese and local people around the mouth of the Zambezi River, around as early as the 6th century AD. The high prevalence of Javanese-style glass beads in the region compared to other Asian goods also seemingly indicates a particularly close trade relationship between the Javanese and East African peoples. So, according to the Javanese hypothesis, the earliest Madagascar settlements were part of a wider effort by Javanese merchants to trade directly with the people of coastal East Africa. There were settlements like this throughout much of southern and eastern Africa, but Madagascar was the only one where Austronesian culture remained dominant, largely due to a sizable population of enslaved Dayak workers that the Javanese brought with them. While this theory sounds plausible, others, like linguistic anthropologist Otto Dahl, were not convinced. Dahl argued, rather, that a direct migration from Borneo to Madagascar was more plausible, and that the cultural and linguistic influence of Java and Madagascar was more likely due to later migrations. Rather, Dahl and his supporters have argued that the early Dayak settlers of Madagascar not only came of their own will, but were likely fleeing their homeland as refugees. You see, the part of Borneo where the Malagasy's ancestors lived was in a state of political flux at the time when the first migrations to Madagascar purportedly occurred. Some groups of Dayaks, who were more influenced by Malayan and Indian culture through trade, began to consolidate their control over large portions of the islands, setting up the region's first formalized kingdoms, at least that we know of. The Dayaks who resisted rule from these Indianized kingdoms were instead displaced in multiple directions, with one population of these displaced refugees finding their way to Madagascar. Regardless of which of these two hypotheses you find more convincing, both of them share some important factors in common when speculating about the reason behind the Austronesian settlement of Madagascar. For starters, whoever did it, they did it on purpose. The once mainstream hypothesis, which claimed that the Austronesian ancestors of the Malagasy merely floated over to the island by accident, are now marginalized in the field of history for good reason. The successful settlement of a land thousands of miles away requires well-organized provisioning, or else these settlers will quickly consume their food on the way, or soon after arriving their new home, and die. It must be well-organized. Settlements are rarely self-perpetuating this early in their history, and require relatively frequent numbers of new immigrants to sustain their population. So, whether it was arranged by refugees seeking somewhere to build a new life, or by a larger kingdom seeking commercial opportunities... What we can say for certain is that the arrival of Austronesians in Madagascar was no accident. These first settlers to arrive in Madagascar from Indonesia were far from the last. 
The earliest settlements of Madagascar were exclusively located on the island's coast, and continued to receive a stream of incoming immigrants from the Indonesian archipelago. Unlike the largely Dayak initial population, these new settlers came from all over, including people from the islands of Java, Sumatra, Sulawesi, and the Sunda Islands. By this time, the Dayak, even if they were originally brought to the island as enslaved people, had clearly established themselves as the dominant culture on the island, and for the most part, these newcomers assimilated into the island's Dayak-deriving culture. It's not like the other Indonesian immigrants didn't leave any impact on the island, though. Malagasy today contains a small portion of loanwords from other Indonesian languages that cannot be found in their closest linguistic relatives in Borneo. The earliest post-settlement history of Madagascar is not very well understood by historians, largely because our only sources of information about the period derive from the writings of foreigners and from archaeology. Use of writing had not yet become common in Indonesia during the time of the first Malagasy settlements, though scripts based on Indian writing system would emerge not too long after. So the only written records that we have about the island during this era derive from the works of Muslim merchants and geographers. A 10th century account from Ibn Sharia al-Ramhomuzi, a Persian geographer and sailor, gives us a short description that some have interpreted as a Malagasy raid on mainland Africa. In the 10th century, Ramhormuzi describes the people of Wakwak, a term used by Muslims of the era to denote the people of modern Indonesia, invading a city called Kanbalo on the East African coast. The city, of which we do not know the location of today, was a major trade hub in its time, known for its exports of valuable animal skins, ivory, turtle shells, and grey amber. A group of Wakwak sought to raid the city for its valuables, and attacked it from the sea using large warships. However, the people of Kanbalo were ready. The city featured imposing defensive walls, including a well-defended citadel. While the Wakwak fought with ferocity, they simply could not breach the city's defenses no matter how hard they tried, and were forced to call off the attack. Scholarship on the exact meaning of Ramhormuzi's account of the Battle of Kanbalo is diverse. Due to Ramhormuzi's vague description of events, it's unclear who exactly the Wakwak of his story are. Given the overtly economic nature of their mission, it seems like Ramhormuzi's Wakwak were not necessarily sailors in any nation's navy, but rather a group of pirates. The biggest debate comes in where these men were from. Given that their only descriptive feature is that they were Wakwak, we can't say for certain if these men were Malay, Javanese, Sumatran, Sundanese, or from somewhere else entirely. Given the proximity to East Africa, though, it seems like the early Malagasy would be the Wakwak in closest proximity, and therefore the most likely culprit. At the very least, any raid this well-organized would need a place to base themselves to prepare for such a large operation. But regardless of if the pirates in the story were Malagasy themselves, or if they were Indonesian pirates who were simply using the island as a base, Ram Hormuzi's account provides us our earliest window into the relationship between the early Malagasy and their East African neighbors. Unlike Ram Hormuzi, though, archaeological evidence paints a less overtly antagonistic relationship between the two. There is pretty strong evidence that, especially in the first few centuries of the island settlement, Malagasy people relied very heavily on trade with mainland Africa for their daily lives. Malagasy pottery in this era is almost exclusively derived from the Tana tradition, a style which was ubiquitous in coastal East Africa during the 6th through 10th centuries. The omnipresence of Tana pottery in early Malagasy settlements strongly implies a heavy reliance on imports when it came to the locals' ceramic needs. 
Malagasy settlers also relied heavily on mainland East Africa for agricultural products. Throughout the 8th and 9th century, the early Malagasy traded with East Africans for a menagerie of domesticated animals, including East African breeds of cattle, pigs, goats, guinea fowl, and pigeons, as well as domestic plants like sorghum, millet, and yams. This exchange was not entirely unilateral, however, as Malagasy introduced East Africa to new Asian crops like Asian rice, taro, bananas, and mung beans. Soon, animals and products were not the only thing arriving in Madagascar from East Africa. Starting around 900 AD, we have the earliest evidence of large-scale migration from coastal East Africa to the island. Similarly to the Dayak or Indonesian migrations, the arrival of East Africans on Madagascar was certainly not a single event, but rather a series of smaller migrations. And again, like the Indonesian migration, the exact nature of this migration is disputed. By the dawn of the 10th century, coastal East Africa had long been dominated by a group of vaguely connected linguistic cultures known as the Bantu peoples. Bantu is kind of similar to Austronesian, in that it represents a large, overarching linguistic family, rather than a specific culture. And, much like the Austronesian cultures, Bantu cultures are largely famous for their impressive success in terms of settlement and expansion. Likely originating from as far afield as modern Cameroon and Nigeria, the Proto-Bantu, or ancestors of all future Bantu-speaking peoples, began migrating south and east. To oversimplify a process that will certainly feature in more detail in some future season, a series of gradual migrations, followed by cultural assimilation of the local people, continued until the 4th century AD. By the time of the gradual completion of the expansion, Bantu peoples were now the dominant culture throughout essentially the entire southern half of the continent, by the time of the gradual end of the expansion, Bantu peoples were now the dominant culture throughout essentially the entire southern half of the continent, with only a few cultural exclaves remaining the exception. This included, most importantly for our podcast, the region of the East African coastline. Now, it's hard to say to what extent modern ethnic identifications existed in East Africa at the time. Also, there has been comparatively less study put into understanding these East African migrations into Madagascar compared to the Indonesian migrations. As a result, we can't say with any degree of certainty from which exact cultures these people came from. To further add to the ambiguity, nobody's exactly sure why or how these Bantu settlers came to Madagascar in the first place. One of the more common hypotheses argues that the early Bantu introduced to Madagascar were, similarly to the Dayak, not brought to the island by choice. Remember that account of Austronesian pirates raiding the East African coast? Well, among the list of items included that they sought to plunder was, well, people. As you can infer by the earliest mention, the institution of slavery was, like everywhere else on Earth, an element in ancient Indonesian society, and that remained true in Madagascar. Accounts like Ram Hormuzi's, as well as Javanese written records from later centuries, show that eventually there would be an act of slave trade between East Africa and Indonesia. Now, it is worth noting that slavery in Madagascar was almost certainly not hereditary at the time. That is to say, if someone was enslaved and they had a child, that child would not necessarily be enslaved as well. This would explain how, if you believe the theory that the Dayak were slaves brought to Madagascar, why there is no evidence of the island remaining an oppressed slave society after its foundation. So, according to this hypothesis, East African Bantu-speaking peoples were brought over to Madagascar as enslaved workers and their free children went on to become foundational members of the Malagasy people. However, the Bantu slavery hypothesis is not without criticism. 
For starters, the presence of East African pottery on the island, while likely indicating high volumes of trade with the mainland, may also indicate the existence of a sizable mainland population living in Madagascar from the very early stages of its settlement, with the earliest Bantu settlers arriving not too long after the earliest Dayak settlers. Additionally, it's plausible that the migration of the Bantu peoples to Madagascar was, well, just a late stage in the Bantu expansions. Bantu cultures had expanded across the entirety of South and Central Africa without anyone carrying them into parts unknown, so is it really so hard to believe that the same could be true in Madagascar? Additionally, the high volume of Bantu loanwords in the Malagasy language seemingly challenges this idea. Typically, enslaved populations leave little in terms of linguistic impact when it comes to roots from their old language, as they are forcefully assimilated into the dominant culture. Also of note, the highest concentration of Bantu loanwords in Malagasy relate to animal husbandry, indicating that the early Bantu migrants may have come to the island not as slaves, but as migrating pastoralists. However, this theory is not totally absent of flaws itself. Given that slavery in Madagascar was not hereditary, the notion that people would be totally assimilated after a single generation without leaving linguistic traces eh, seems a bit unlikely. Additionally, it doesn't seem far-fetched to claim that Bantu migration to Madagascar may have featured multiple elements. After all, we know that Bantu migration occurred in multiple waves. Some people may have been brought to the island as enslaved workers, while others may have independently migrated as pastoral herdsmen. Regardless, what we can say for certain is that the earliest large-scale African migrants to Madagascar were Bantu. Genetic and linguistic studies of modern Malagasy show little to no influence from other African ethno-linguistic families such as Cushitic, Khoisan, or the continent's various pygmy languages. So with the arrival of Bantu peoples throughout the 7th to 11th centuries, the basis for the modern Malagasy gene pool was largely complete. Now other peoples, particularly Indians, Somalis, and Arabs, will go on to make significant cultural contribution to the island. However, when it comes to genetics, these Bantu and Austronesian settlers are the ancestors of modern Malagasy people. While the exact ratio varies from region to region, the Malagasy gene pool of today, as well as for the last several hundred years, has been close to 50-50 in terms of East African and Indonesian ancestry. Like I said, this ratio is not consistent from region to region, much less individual to individual. Typically, people from western Madagascar have a higher degree of Bantu ancestry, averaging closer to 60% of their genetic makeup. Meanwhile, people from the Inland Highlands have the opposite, with an average of 60% Austronesian ancestry, while the East compromises at close to 50-50. The arrival of human beings on Madagascar had an immediate effect on the island's environment. Soon after humans arrived, the largest species on the island began to decline in number. Their habitat shrank as they were forced to move away from the island's coast. Unsurprisingly, hippos were the first to die out, going extinct around 1000 AD. Elephant birds similarly saw their numbers collapse, with the last elephant birds dying out around 1200 to 1300. Giant lemurs were the last to go. Though most species were long gone, the last remnants of this family clung to survival all the way until 1500. However, like everything else in the island's early history, the exact nature and cause of these extinctions is ambiguous. Early in the study of Malagasy paleontology, the mainstream assumption was that overhunting was the primary culprit. However, the relatively small number of megafauna remains featuring signs of human butchery has led to the development and widespread acceptance of alternative hypotheses. Habitat loss, the introduction of invasive rats, and even new diseases brought with livestock each have some strong supporting evidence, 
which has led to the adoption of a general consensus that a combination of all of these factors were responsible for the death of Madagascar's megafauna. By the 13th century AD, the island was now thoroughly settled. While the coasts remained the most populous region, even the island's interior highlands were now the home of growing settlements. The narratives of what happened after these people's arrival, though, gets only more complex from here. Join us in our next episode, as we examine and dissect the competing narratives about the settlement of Madagascar's highlands, and the region's supposed mysterious early inhabitants, the Vazimba. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then we would love it if you could support the show. You can do this through supporting us monetarily at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing the show with a rating or a view on whichever platform you listen on, or sharing the show with anyone who you think might be interested in learning more about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayo Fagwamie, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Penza, Dimitri, Manuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sebalabie, Diz R.H., Evan Edwards, Pascalin Wakocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwabodike, Sheyuno Lorontimain, Kwacho Amankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, and Samuel Badu, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really means a lot.